Hello, welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today, we are going to talk about what does it even mean to be a Christian? Um, as you know, we're going through the Come Follow Me readings and picking out some of the things along the way that our evangelical friends or family members might um, cause them to be curious about our faith. Maybe you're curious about their faith, too. Sometimes Latter-day Saints don't know what in the world it is that they're talking about. Hoping to help make a bridge for you here, have some better conversations with the end goal in mind, being able to share with them some of the things um, that are meaningful in our faith. So we are getting close to the first week of August. First week of August is the Bear Conference. Soon I will stop announcing this to you, but not yet. Um, August 2 through 4, I have told you about a lot of the speakers already, and I want to tell you about another one. It's a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. It's um, the Pathways program. Brian Ashton is the current president of Pathways, and he's going to give a talk at FAIR. Um, if you don't know what Pathways is, it's a um, college program for adults around the world where they can access a college education maybe for people who would not otherwise be able to um they spend uh, usually a year sometimes a little bit more in the pathways program and then they are transferred over as a full student at byu idaho they can take classes in person or online um just an amazing amazing program i don't i don't know if i have said this to you guys before or not i teach a byu idaho class um I have to teach online. I don't live in Rexburg. Um, I adore the BYU-Idaho kids. I don't directly teach Pathway students, but I do get a lot of students in my class who have come through the Pathways program. So they've completed their year or a little bit more there and are now like fully matriculated students at the university. And so I get a lot of them in, in my classes. Um, this is not at all to diss on the traditional students that we have there. They're wonderful students, too. But the pathway students work really, really hard. I am always incredibly impressed with the amount of work that they are able to produce, the quality, the hoops that they have had to jump through in order to get to where they are. It's All of them are just really impressive. So I'm super looking forward to that talk. Um, but... I'll tell you this, when I was 18, I graduated from high school. I went to junior, they called it junior college. Um, I think they still call it that. I went to school in Modesto, California. Called it Modesto Junior College. I'm pretty sure it's still named that. My experience there was a disaster. Top to bottom, a complete disaster. I had been through a lot in my life by the time I was 18. Um, I just wasn't ready for school. I, I did terrible my first semester, cobbled barely a passing grade, maybe in one class. Um, I, I think I took another semester of classes that went even worse, to be honest. Um, I left school. I, I made a couple other attempts in my 20s to, to do school, and I just, I had just gone through too much in life by that point to kind of have myself sorted out enough to do school. I actually, I actually thought I wasn't smart enough to go to college and go back until my 30s. 
Um, I had a baby on my hip and a textbook in the other hand and and did the best that I could do. Two master's degrees later, I am incredibly grateful for um, the kinds of programs that help non-traditional students. I would not be who I am today if I hadn't found a non-traditional path back into school. And the Pathways program really, really makes that possible for people all over the world. Um, So huge fan of that. Can't wait to hear more about that at Bear. Um, Today, we're going to talk about being a Christian. What does that mean? So the scripture where we're jumping off of is Acts 11.26. The second half of it, it says, So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Antioch is in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. A lot of the New Testament happens in Turkey. Um, and Antioch is kind of the the center hub there for a while. There's lots of kinds of people that live in Antioch. And the, the Christians were an oddity there, especially because it really was rich and poor, people with a Jewish background, people with a Gentile background. And the, the others in the community didn't even know exactly like what is going on here. Prior to that, religions and groups were separated by culture, by ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status, and the Christians were really different from that. So this is the first place to give them that name. Um, and in the past, uh, in this show, we have talked about um, what is a Christian through talking about the traditional Christian creeds and and honestly, that's a, it's probably the best way to answer the question about why, why do Latter-day Saints see Christianity one way and, and evangelicals and others see it a different way, looking at that through the lens of the creeds. Um, back in 2004, Larry King famously interviews President Hinckley, and the answer he gives is something like, um, if you define what a Christian is by adherence to the creeds, then no, Latter-day Saints are not Christians. But if you define what that is by um, people who follow the teachings of Christ that's found in the scriptures, then yes, of course we're Christians. And I actually, I think that's a really, really good way to talk about it. But we're going to do it a little bit differently today, come at it from a different direction. Um, instead of wondering... Does this person have the correct beliefs to be a Christian? We're going to talk about, does this person have correct practices to be a Christian? So there's two words here you need to know. Um, Orthodoxy is a word you're probably familiar with. We think of orthodoxy as like a person who is very traditionally like strict in their beliefs, maybe. But the word actually means the, the ortho is means like that's like straight like a straight line um and the doxy is beliefs or, or talking about your beliefs so it's orthodoxy is they have the correct beliefs but there's another word when we're measuring what a person is and it's orthopraxy and here or ortho still means straight like straight line um and praxy here means conduct so like ethical behavior, the liturgical practice, like church practices. Um, so we're going to talk about the question in this way. Instead of, 
who has the correct beliefs. I want to talk about who has correct practices, except not quite in that way. Saying it that way might make you take, make the mistake of saying, we're going to say, oh, these Latter-day Saint beliefs are better than these evangelical beliefs. And I don't find that to be a particularly interesting conversation. Um, although, for the record, if you're new here, I was an evangelical. I am a Latter-day Saint now in part because I find the practices to be more fulfilling to me personally. They mean more. They, they work for me. So yes, I believe that, but we're going to talk about it in a, in a tiny different way, which is understanding that some practices seem really weird to people who don't practice them. But when you learn why the person is doing what they're doing, it makes a little bit more sense. Um, there also is this idea in orthodoxy that if you believe the right things, then everything else will be fine. And everything else will fall into place. And it's really pushing into Gnosticism, really pushing into this idea that getting things straight in your head is all you have to do. You don't actually have to worry that much about the practices or the behaviors that go along with it. And it just turns out that's just not true. It just doesn't work that way. I'll give you an analogy from the mental health world. So, so I'm a mental health therapist. And sometimes people come to therapy and they say, you know, I've been dealing with this issue uh, over and over and over and over again. And I'm trying to find the right ways to think about it. And I just, I'm just so stuck, right? And I have a lot of compassion on them. I've been there. Maybe I still am there in some ways. I don't know. You've been there. Maybe you still are in some ways. Um, and we humans tend to think that if we can get a subject figured out in our heads first, then behavior is going to follow. And if you're a person who loves to be in their head and loves all the intellectual stuff like I do, like we're doubly, we're doubly bad at this. The reality is on most things, at least in the mental health world, if you could figure it out in your head, you would have done so already. Right? You're stuck because you figured it out as far as you can figure it out. You have to add some practice to that so when someone figures out an issue in in mental health world in their head and then they try to act the right way it's lovely if you can do it by the way not knocking it um we call that top-down processing you're processing from your brain out into the rest of your body acting however you're gonna decided that you act in your head but a lot of times, a lot, a lot, a lot of times, what has to happen for a person is they have to start doing behaviors that will then produce an emotional or a cognitive result. The best example is if you're depressed and you would like your depression to last longer and go deeper, stay in your pajamas all day. Never open the blinds to let sunlight in. Lay on the couch and watch depressing shows on Netflix. Eat junk. Get your days and nights mixed up. Never talk to anyone who loves you. Right? That's the recipe for how to make your depression last longer. The recipe for how to make your depression episode shorter is every single day. Get up and take care of yourself. Take a shower. Put on some clean clothes. Put on some shoes. Leave your house. Go out and do what it is that you are going to go do in the world. Engage with people who care about you. Engage in things you care about, knowing that 
Those are the things that will make you feel better. And then when you feel better, you feel more like doing those. But sometimes the behavior has to come first. So that's sort of what we're talking about today. We're not talking about orthodoxy. Get it all right in your head and then live it out. We're talking about how you how you live something out and it informs what's in your head. So to, to make my point, I want to look at a historical example of orthopraxy. Um, and that, that historical example, they call it the kiss of peace or the holy kiss. If you've read the New Testament at all, you have read the letters where Paul and others will say things like, greet one another with a holy kiss. And at least in America, um, we just skim right past that, don't we? Like, we ain't kissing nobody. <laughs> Not anybody you, you don't know. Maybe in, in other countries where they do the cheek kissing, like, they don't bat an eye at that because that's in their culture. But in American culture, right, like, we're not super down for, like, kissing people we don't know. Um, let me explain how the Eastern Orthodox Church handles this. <laughs> And since we've been talking about Orthodox, let me, this is just a side note. The Eastern Orthodox, that is a branch of Christianity. They broke off from the Catholic Church um, in 1044. Um, they are their own entire branch of Christianity. The word Orthodox there doesn't mean correct belief necessarily. I mean, that's an episode for a different day, I suppose. Um, but in the Eastern Orthodox Church, many places they still practice this the holy kiss or the kiss of peace and here's how it works for them um during the service there's a long section of scripture reading we latter-day saints we don't do a lot of um just scripture reading in services the liturgical churches do they'll have a reading from the old testament a reading from psalms a reading from the gospels and a reading from the letters so you sit and just listen to scripture read for quite a while. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they would complete the scripture reading portion. And then the congregation would be invited to participate in the Holy Kiss. Now, women are on one side and men are on the other. They are Their genders are separated um, for, from, from each other. So women are kissing women and men are kissing men. In, in plenty of cultures, that's not a big deal. In American culture... That's probably not going to happen. Um, they give each other um, the kiss of peace. This is not cheek kissing, right? This is not mwah, mwah. This is mouth to mouth, short, closed mouth kisses. Um, and they do this for two reasons. One, Paul teaches about it in the New Testament. They are trying to take the New Testament as seriously as possible. We know that this practice was practiced. The, up to 400 years after Christ, the, the Christians, this was something This was something that they did. And so the Eastern Orthodox are trying to carry on that tradition. Um, they believe it to be a symbol of the love that should be between believers and a reminder that the Holy Spirit is with them. They're, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, their highest goal is union with God. Um, that, I mean, Latter-day Saints, this will just sound familiar to you. Um, they believe that their, their goal is to grow up and be like their heavenly father, right? To become like God in that sense. Um, they nuance that a little bit differently than we do, um, but they're probably the closest ones to us on that. So they practice it 
for that reason. And the second reason, it's going to sound really weird to you, but the kiss comes right before the non-baptized adults would be asked to leave the room. Now, this doesn't get practiced this way in every single Eastern Orthodox church today. This is the traditional way. There's many places where this, this won't be what happens. Um, scripture reading, kiss of peace, adults are asked to leave the room if they are not baptized. The, the priest or the deacon, um, the traditional thing that happens there is he shouts out, the doors, the doors. And what that means is, if you ain't baptized, you got to go. Um, and the reason why is that they are about to partake in the sacrament, and they consider that to be incredibly private worship. They don't want people standing around and gawking at them. Um, it, it's sacred. They treat it as such. Um, very much how we treat temple worship is how they would treat the taking of the sacrament. So in their way of thinking, the kiss happens before the non-baptized adults are dismissed, but it's as a way of showing them, um, we still offer you peace. We still recognize the the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit working in you. We are not um, like banished as a punishment. You just aren't going to understand the part that happens next. So you got to go. Now, no Protestant or evangelical church that I know of uses this um, holy kiss practice today. If you if you know of one, I would love to know. Like, hit me up in the comments. I think that would be fascinating. I don't know of any though. Um, occasionally in evangelical churches, it's the like turn and greet your neighbor kind of thing. But that that's really motivated by like community building, not a passing of the the love and the spirit between them. So to our ears, Latter-day Saints and evangelicals, the holy kiss is a weird practice, right? Understandably so. But if you study that practice and you really listen to what they're saying about why they do this and how it shapes them, it makes a lot of sense in their context. And just pick up some practice and and do it without any understanding of of why or what it's forming them into. It, it's incredibly well thought out for them. The same dynamic comes up in discussion between Latter-day Saints and evangelicals. For the most part, evangelicals do not understand our beliefs. They don't they, they don't understand what our orthodoxy is. And to be honest, I took lessons for a very long time when I was investigating the church before it really actually started to click into place for me of what was being said. Um, and then I fell in love real hard with it, but it, it took me a minute. Um, it, and to be honest, Latter-day Saints, for the most part, don't understand evangelical practices or beliefs either. Some of our practices sound incredibly odd to them especially when we're talking about temple stuff. They're like, what? Um, and I mean, fair, fair or not, but when they when they see some of these things in media portrayals or, or video of like a camera getting sneaked into the temple, right? Like it's entirely out of context for them. They have no way to understand it. Um, so of course, so of course it is really, really odd to them. It sounds like the Holy Kiss does to, to you and me. Um, 
my point my point here is if you can understand why an evangelical is doing some of the practices they're doing the the practices make a little bit more sense to you and you might be able to find a great way to have a conversation with your friend and likewise Latter-day Saints, if you are able to articulate, here is why, like, we as a group or you as an individual do such and such, um, I mean, everything is incredibly understandable, right? Like, that's um, sort of, like, FAIR is an apologetics organization. That's what apologetics is all about, right? Helping people understand, like, these complex things. Nothing that we do in the church is so out of the ordinary that it can't be understood um being able to talk about like why is tithing so important in our church why is that like such a benchmark and and you're clearly on one side or on the other and there are um blessings that come with that or, or that don't so like why why is it that way being able to talk about it that way with your evangelical friends say like, this is our this is our belief in what the correct practice is and here's why sometimes latter-day saints um tend a little bit to fall on um because this is what we were taught or like this is what the scriptures say this is what our prophet taught and all of those are true um but it doesn't help an evangelical person gain very much understanding they'll 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 smile and nod but they're not actually going to get what you mean so how how do we decide what is actually orthopraxy? What are actually the right practices to follow? So if you've been following these episodes, you probably already have a hint about the answer here. Latter-day Saints, um, we have a prophet who can give us the final word on things. Evangelicals, they are an entirely different different way of thinking about this they are very 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 independent minded each person is not only able but required to be the prophet of themselves right to be the one who gives guidance to themselves and they have to decide for themselves if a practice is the right practice or not to be honest in my way of thinking butterfly saints just have it a lot easier a lot clearer it, it takes some of the, the guesswork and the stress out of, am I right about my thoughts about this practice or not? And certainly there's evangelicals who they never give a, a thought to, is this a right practice? They just go along with the flow. But a lot of them are incredibly thoughtful and they are trying to decide for themselves as if they were their own prophet, if this is the right thing or not. Here, here's a simple example. Um... So our, our Latter-day Saint churches have gone through a variety of schedule changes. I've heard um, people quite a bit older than me talk about what church was like when they were children. I think I remember hearing like they did primary in the middle of the week or something. And like now primary is on Sundays, like lots and lots of schedule changes over the years. Most of you Latter-day Saints, you know this way better than I do. Um, the one experience that I, I can talk about because I was there, moving from three-hour church to two-hour church. So I wasn't a member um, when we had three-hour church. I was still taking lessons. Um, I 
I got baptized at the end of January, the year that we switched to two-hour church. Um, but I had attended for months and months and months when it was three-hour church. All of the congregations, wards and branches around the world are instructed to make this change on what date, how it should happen. I remember there being, and you probably do too, this graphic and like, here's your 10 minutes passing period and now you go to your next, right? Like it's all incredibly spelled out. Um, and I was amazed by that because evangelicals do not work that way. There are a lot of reasons why, but the most basic one is it, it's this idea they get to decide for themselves, even down to what a schedule should look like. Let, let me explain. Um, if you're in, if you're an evangelical and you're in a church that for whatever reason changes their schedule and it doesn't work for you, there's dozens of other evangelical churches in your town or your city or, or wherever that you could just switch over to that church because um, you like their time better. And there can be entirely legitimate reasons why, right? The ward I'm in right now, we meet in the afternoon. We meet at 1.30. There's four wards in our building. We're on a rotation right now. We're in the 1.30 spot. Next year, we'll be at 9 a.m., uh, which is better than 1.30 in my way of thinking. Um, but we get told what that is, and there isn't a ton of there isn't a ton of option. Evangelicals, it is not that way. If you don't like it, you get to leave. And really, no one is going to look down on that. They might You might have friends who feel sad, like, oh, you're not in our church anymore. But nobody is going to think that that's a problem. Whereas... In our in our Latter-day Saint churches, if somebody attends outside of the boundaries of their assigned ward, there is probably a very good reason as to why that is happening. Um, evangelicals look at that and think, well, that's crazy to let somebody else tell you exactly where you have to go to church. That's not right. Like they would be really, really offended at the idea because they decide for themselves. And if they don't like what a certain church has to offer, they go off to another one. And you see this in, in like middle-sized cities a lot. Um, every couple of years, a new church will be like the hip popular church and, and lots of evangelicals will run over there to that church. But a couple of years later, another church is the popular one and they all run over to that church. And um, that's not looked down on, that's just what they do. Um, to voluntarily say, somebody else gets to make this decision for me. They get to decide not only how long is church, but they get to decide if I attend at 1.30 or at 9 a.m. It's just, an evangelical is just not going to be down for that. Um, so you can see why our two, our two groups, our two groups would approach something as simple as scheduling church so differently it it comes down to who gets to decide um and a lot of times when we're talking orthopraxy who decides what the right practices are this is where evangelicals and latter-day saints just talk past each other all the time because we get we get caught up on the practices that we find to be weird in the other one 
when I was telling you about the holy kiss, if you've never heard of that before, you're probably like, that is a weird practice. And I could have told you more, right? Like it, it's totally outside of our um, structure or understanding. So I think Latter-day Saints have a temptation to look at evangelicals and be like, that practice can't be right. And they certainly have um, a, a tendency to look at us and say, that practice can't be right. But the way out of this is pretty simple. And and honestly, it applies to, to both groups. It applies to all kinds of relationships. Um, our, our practice, Latter-day Saints, of allowing our leaders to decide something like our church schedule is informed by our belief that God expresses his love to us by providing us with prophets and leaders. And our following their teaching in this example, I mean, it's not a big one, but moving from three-hour church to two-hour church, it gives us experience in learning that we can trust and follow this leadership. Of course, evangelicals would see their version the same way. They would say, well, I was attending XYZ church. I decided in myself that I needed to go move to ABC church, and that worked out for me. They are their own prophets, and, and they see that work out for them. Um, each one of them individually has the final word over what the correct belief and correct practices are. Um, whereas for Latter-day Saints, it's much more of a, a corporate um, exercise. We are part of a group. We don't decide individually. Um, we get bogged down by thinking about evangelical practices and, and calling them um, unusual or crazy. I mean, I hear Latter-day Saints say that, say that very much. Uh, honestly, it's more evangelicals say that about us, but it can go both ways. Uh, while we get bogged down in, in just calling out the other's practices as odd, it doesn't give us any room for trying to understand why they're doing that, right? Like evangelicals are doing that for what they believe are very, very good reasons, which is they themselves, the individuals, stand before God, accountable for their own choices. Um, they want to make sure that they're making the right ones as best as they can, as best as they understand them, and that's respectable, right? Um, we, Latter-day Saints, see ourselves as a as a corporate group, as a as a church, right? Um, and that God has given us prophets who are allowed to tell us what to do. So they, we're almost out of time, but one last little tiny part I want to talk about here. And really, this is just an aside, not my main point. Um, but I will say this. As someone who moved from the evangelical system into the Latter-day Saint system, it's tricky. Right? If you have people in your ward or in your branch or in your life who, who either grew up as evangelical or that's sort of the the religion that they have known and they become Latter-day Saints, they deserve a lot of patience, a lot of um, even long-suffering, I suppose. It takes a bit to wrap your mind around, um, I as an individual am now no longer in charge of every exact thing that happens in my church experience. And moving into, I get to trust the leaders and their wisdom and that God has given them to me. 
it's hard it's hard for evangelicals to make that switch it is also hard for anyone who comes from any church in, including if their background in our latter-day saint churches who's been really burned by leaders in a church in the past if they have gone across somebody who was not um careful of them who was abusive of them who was all kinds of things um it uh, it is a challenge to trust that your leaders are actually going to listen to god that they are actually leading you in a right way so latter-day scene friends if that is not your struggle and you recognize that there are people in your life in your ward in your branch that that is their struggle i just implore you to have patience with them that is a hard ask sometimes, especially if they've kind of got the double whammy of coming from an evangelical church and having some like, bad leadership experiences. Um, I, I'm not the, I'm not the textbook case of that. Normally that's a recipe for people leaving their faith entirely, right? I'm the weird exception to it. Um, anyway, give them, give them lots and lots of patience and love and acceptance and kindness. Um, okay, there we are. This is all orthopraxy. Um, next week, we are going to talk about the idea that the Bible contains all truth and anything else added to it, anything else claiming to be from God cannot possibly be such. Ah, will be a fun episode. I'm looking forward to it. See you then.